Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. Uh, David, we got to talk to two fascinating people this week. Um, and we're going to start by hearing your conversation with Jeremy Pope, the star of The Inspection, um, which I know going to TIFF, we were both like really keeping an eye on it and keeping an eye on him in particular. He's someone who's been around for a few years and has popped in enough things that his stardom kind of felt like a given. And The Inspection really is a showcase for him that maybe he's been waiting for. Yeah, I think that's completely right. And the other part of this for him is um, it's his first leading role in a movie. And wow. one of his first movies ever. It's his third movie total. So um, I think there was this combination of expectation going into the movie and also discovery because this is a real um, showcase for an actor who's made a name for himself on Broadway um, but hadn't quite gotten a part like this in film before. And uh, he really delivers. Well, he also carried this immense pressure that other actors have been through before, but can't get easier of playing his director, essentially. It's Elegance Bratton's really autobiographical movie. And, you know, being an actor is intense in the first place, but I imagine that brings a whole new layer. Yeah, this film was shot in less than three weeks, <laughs> which, honestly, if you watch it, it's pretty remarkable. It has a real scope. It's it's a boot camp movie. It uses its setting really well. Uh, there's also... It's bookended by pretty intense scenes of his home life. Um, so there's a lot going on. It's a really intense role, as you say, Katie, with this chapter of this man's life being, you know, lightly fictionalized, um, but still really raw and very, very personal. And Jeremy Pope gives a really emotional performance. 
Um, and I, I think you hope that in the best actor category this year, which is quite fluid, that there is room for a real discovery like this because it's a it's a really wonderful performance. And uh, I love getting to hear about you know just the intense prep that went into making it work. Yeah. Uh, well, let's hear all about that in your conversation with Jeremy Pope. Jeremy Pope, you're here to talk about The Inspection. While you are in previews uh, doing a Broadway play, so we appreciate you being here. <laughs> Thank you for having me, for sure. So this is for the film The Inspection, um, which is an incredibly moving movie. I would imagine a really intense experience making a movie like that. Um, but I wanted to start because this is one of your first movies with your experience traveling with it and sharing it with people and having it go on what's been a pretty remarkable journey from Toronto to playing all over the world. Yeah, it's been a gift. It's been a dream. I think, you know, when you're making indie movies, like the one we did, you, you never really know what the end game is going to be, um, how small or how big your release will be. So you kind of do it because you love the, the script, you love the story, you love the people you're working with. And this movie we shot in 19 days in the middle of a pandemic. So I think us just crossing the finish line felt like the win of all wins. So to kind of now be on this side where we've had the fortune to take it to TIFF and New York Film Festival and kind of just show it, like you said, around the world and it for, for it to be received with love is a blessing, you know, and especially being that this is my kind of lead debut. It's like, I think I've had the dream come experience or the dream come true experience where you just, you have a movie, you're not quite sure what it, going to do, but it ends up doing some really special things and being a part of some um, really, you know, important festivals. And what I love about festivals is you get to have the Q&As and you get to have the conversation with the viewers after. So you, you, you get to kind of feel and vibrate with, you know, the audience's reaction to the film, which yeah. I think is really nice. Yeah, I went to the Toronto premiere and just seeing all of you guys on stage, really emotional was... Um, yeah. It was intense, but really beautiful, I thought. Yeah, you know, it was it was definitely very emotional. I think, you know, if anything, I was just, I'm so happy for Elegance, you know, because this story is based off of his experience in life and his directorial debut. So you want those people, those extended family members who, are, you know, are, feel like family now to to feel loved and supported in the art. So that was kind of what made it so emotional for me is that his story and this moment was being embraced by, you know, the community, which is a blessing. Hmm. So let's let's talk about playing Elegance's story and playing um, a pretty pivotal and, and difficult period of his life. How did you come to know him? How did he strike you? And how did you think about playing this time period for him? Right. Um, you know, I think I read the script. I had an agent at the time who um, wanted me to love the script as much as she did. So I read the script and fell in love with the words on the page, but was fortunate to hop on a Zoom with him the next day. And he just felt so familiar already. He felt like kind of, I, I say extended family member, but it was like a cousin you didn't know you had. Like, you know, and he had worked with Terrell McCraney, who I had worked with years before on Choir Boy. Um, Terrell actually had helped produce one of Elegant's first docs. So that felt connected in a way. Like it just, again, it felt like family you didn't know you had. So. I was like, dude, I want to go on this journey with you if you're down. And he was like, yes, let's do it. But then the phone didn't ring for like nine months. It took forever mm -hmm. for this to kind of come back. And I kept wrestling 
this idea of like what happened to the inspection, I really felt instinctually and in my gut that I was supposed to be in that room and you know do this project with him. So when I got the official yes, I knew that my gut wasn't wrong. It just you know life is life in and doing what it has to do. And I think ultimately when they got the green light, you know, then you're like on fast track and things happen. So I got to connect with Elegance, um, you know, and, and, and just talk about what we wanted this story to mean and what we wanted the story to do. And then I think my work for me was trying to find what's not on the page, um, yeah. you know, where I could bring my own version and interpretation of French. And that was something we talked about early on was that there's no way that I can be you. You know what I mean? I can only kind of mm-hmm. be the vessel and through your experiences and honestly, through my own, we can kind of, you know, create this version of French that will be able to speak to masses and and go through these different challenges. Um, so, you know, he trusted me early on. And I asked him that, you know, I said, you're going to have to trust me for this to work, being that I'm playing you, that you're my writer and you're my director. We're sharing a lot of intimate space emotionally. So this is only going to work if, you know, we kind of have this love language of communication. Um and, and that started very early on. Again, I think this was a very ambitious movie to film in 19 days um, because of how much um, is nuanced throughout it. So that was where I just had to step in. And every day it was about excavating what's not on the page. Mm-hmm. As an actor who was trained and has worked a lot in the theater, I'm curious what kind of strategies and prep um, tactics uh, you employed really to get through it and also to play this character? What, what did that right. look like for you? Um, I think for me, one thing that theater teaches you, doing eight shows a week, it teaches you consistency. I, I consider theater and Broadway to be like the military boot camp for acting because it's like no matter what's going on in your life, you have a show to deliver, sometimes at 2 p.m. and most times at 7 or 8. Um, and you got to find your way through that story, beginning, middle, and end with your cast who's evolving and changing. So... I think just that style of showing up for the work and making it new is the approach I try to bring with me when I'm doing, you know, things on screen. So being that it was that I always was trying to serve the objective and French because there were a lot of, you know, things happening around me, um, whether it be we're in Mississippi doing this and that or elegance is this first time experiencing that. But I knew that I was there to serve French and the objective of that. So you know, very grateful to that training to be able to have a conversation with Elegance and know that we're only going to get one or two takes on this and me to feel confident in the work to do that. Um, And, you know, Elegance trusting me and allowing me to find the space because I think our film lives a lot, not on the page. It's kind of like the perspective of French and watching him experience this new environment that he's a part of and how that's affecting him emotionally without him having to speak on it. Um, You know, so I think yeah, it was, it was, again, it was very ambitious, but I think we had such a great crew and Elegance trusted me. My, my cast was incredible. Gab, uh, Raul, Bokeem, all of these people were team players. This job was of service. So we showed up to serve, um, you know what I mean? And kind of play the position and the part that we were asked to do and then some. Hmm. Um, in terms of the immersion into this world, uh, which is one that to me, it felt like, evoking great boot camp movies, subverting them at times. Um, what was, I suppose, your relationship to the genre, to what you knew of marine life, and mm-hmm. how did you, what, what did you bring to that, I suppose? Right, right. Um, I mean, I've never served. Uh, I've had family members that serve in, in the military. 
But I think ultimately what the film was doing, less politically, I think it was, it was a film and a script that was challenging masculinity. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've been kind of on my own journey of, you know, unpacking what that is. I, I grew up in a household, you know, I went, uh, went to the church. My dad is a professional bodybuilder, two very hyper-masculine black environments mm-hmm. um, that I've had to kind of identify and, and re-identify my, my existence and standing with masculinity and what it means to be a man and to be strong and to be vulnerable and all of these things that encompass human, the human experience. So I think this script spoke to that for me. It spoke to when you're thrown into an environment that has this unrealistic idea of how you serve as an individual and how you serve as a man and how you serve as a person for this country. And what if you go against the grain? What if you don't necessarily fit in the boxes that people want you to be in? Can you survive? Is there a way out? Is is you know? So um, is there a way through? Not even out, but just a way through. So I loved that our film explored that. I love that elegance is the testimony himself, that that is where his story started, didn't end there. And now we look at him as a filmmaker and he's in arts and he's using his story um, and the gift of storytelling to bring healing to other people's lives. So that's the, the core that struck with me, how sometimes you make a decision which leads you to another decision, which leads you to your purpose. And I feel like elegance is such a prime example of that, where he was on, you know, he had not 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 too many resources. And he turned to the service. And this is a story that isn't, you know, pro, pro-military or speaking really to that, but it's talking about pro-troop and how a community of people can uplift someone and give someone a sense of purpose and send them on their journey and on their way. And I think that's what the military um, and the Marines did for Elegance. It gave him a sense of purpose and a sense of understanding. Um, and that informed the rest of his life. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think to that as well, there is this sense in the movie of seeing people who don't typically occupy this space in the genre of the movies be at the center right. of that story, um, right. which is what you're doing, too, as the actor in the movie. Right, right. I agree. I agree. We've never really seen kind of this experience within this type of environment, but don't ask, don't tell gay Marines that they we've been around. We've just had to move kind of in the shadows um, I say we like I'm a part of it now. I've acted as one, but you know <laughs> I, I speak in 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 that regard of like yeah, it's we we got to shed light on a perspective that we hadn't seen before, and how those people have navigated through these institutions and through these spaces. Hmm. You'd mentioned the waiting period of getting this role, in spite of elegance, you know, wanting you to play the role. Um, and I, I think one time you described it, or one thing that came up for you is this feeling of I'm not a movie star, which. I think kind of hits the nail on the head on the head of a cycle of queer actors, LGBTQ actors fighting to get these kinds of parts, but what is out there preventing that from happening? I'm I'm curious for you getting this part, which is a kind of a star vehicle, um, did it reframe the way you think about your own place in the industry, your own place, your own, I suppose, face, like on the poster even? Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's interesting. And yes, specifically for, you know, marginalized groups of artists and the waiting games that we have to kind of play and be a part of. And I think it also speaks to just artists in general. Like, mm-hmm. 
I always talk about like, if you don't have movie credits or if you don't have TV credits or theater credits, like how do you get them if no one's giving you an opportunity or, you know, a, a place in this, in the, in these spaces to, to, to give and to try and to be a part of. And the business is the business. So I, yeah, I speak about those nine months of, you know, elegance, the director saying that he wants me, but all of the things that have to happen in the line, you know, if I'm not coming in with box office numbers, but I'm right for the job, do I get the job or do we wait for someone who comes in with box office numbers? Cause it is a business. And that's the tricky thing sometimes with art. It's like, you know, you have some people who lean on one side and lean on the other. So I've tried to not allow that affect me and my purpose and what I'm there to do and how I always believe who's meant to be in the room will be in the room. So yes, I read the script. I connected with elegance. We connected. And I believe that connection, you know, none of it was in vain. It's like, it just took some time for it to happen. I had to go off and learn some things about my own life. I had to go experience a movie that I had to leave because I wasn't being treated right. Like all of these things had to happen in order for me to show up and know what I was showing up for when I got the the inspection, when I got the official yes to be a part of the inspection. And it's and it's tricky. And and you can be frustrated and try to understand that part of the business or why things take the time that they do or but I've 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 found that that doesn't ultimately serve me and, and give me too much joy. So while I'm aware of how the business moves, I refuse to let that affect how I take up space and when I take up space. So when I knew that I got the yes, I was going to give everything and then some to the inspection. I was gonna, you know what I mean? Like I knew that I had to leave it there. And your work will speak for your, for itself, you know what I mean? Like I, I think, you know, Effie Brown, our producer says, you can't make something about us without us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so true. And we'll see people try to attempt to do that and try to start, stud a cast or make it do this thing. But you lose the heart and I think sometimes the authenticity of what a piece can and should be. Um, so here we had an opportunity where we had black and brown people making a film about a black and brown man. And I think you just give it so much nuance just because you're in the room and just because you care and just because you have a perspective. I got to you know work with elegance and there were very few times where we didn't understand each other. I think just mm. as two black queer individuals having to have navigated life thus far, there's just a mutual understanding. So when we're telling this story about French, there's just conversations we don't have to have because we get and we understand and we know without a doubt. And I think that is something that you feel in the piece, whether we identify it or not. But I think it's just when certain collaborators share space together, there's just an energy transfer that happens. And I think it just resonates so beautifully on screens. Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. 
At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. You mentioned Trell of um, McCraney and of course you did Hollywood and, and you've you've worked with a lot of pretty um notable, extraordinary people. In terms of understanding that waiting game and understanding what you have to stand for in your past experiences, what kinds of, you know, what pieces of advice, what kinds of things did you learn to be able to, you know, sit here right now and have that kind of confidence and that kind of understanding? Right. I think trusting the process, trusting yourself, trusting that things do take time and people will know when they need to know. Um, I remember one time Terrell, this is, you know, this is before, the Oscar Moonlight, we had worked together on Choir with my first job in 2012. He gave me my first job in New York City. And um, we were out somewhere and someone that came up to him, I think we were at a restaurant. I was like, Terrell, what do you got working on? Like, what are you working on? And he was just like, nothing, like very laissez-faire. And I was like, Terrell, we're literally in rehearsals for this play. Like, and he was like, people will know when they know. Like, I don't want to sit here and have to be this like, you know, and, and that's just the personality that he is. He's just very humble and 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 grateful and sweet. So he didn't want to come, you know, from this place of ego and he rarely does. But I wanted to shout from the rooftops like, hey, you just finished <laughs> Moonlight and it's about to go and do that, da, 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 like all these things. But I think it was just a lesson on him just being like, just just do the work. Just do the work, show up for the work, show up for the spaces that you're a part of and give your all. Um, and, and, and that's been the same with working with Elegance, working with Dominique Morisot on Ain't Too Proud, um, musical about temptations, working with, uh, you know, creators like Janet Mott, just they give so much of themselves to these projects um, just because they want to and they can. Um, so I found that, you know, most of my experience has been through the stage and working with these these incredible artists, but just giving my all when I have the opportunity to and allowing that to, to speak louder um, than any ego, uh, you know, because I, I think there can be such power in storytelling. And I've just been fortunate to align myself in spaces and with stories that speak to my heart and speak to my truth. Um, you know what I mean? And and these creatives that are doing things a bit different and kind of taking their own approach to the stories they want to see represented in the business and in Hollywood or on the screens or on stage. You know, and that's just informed kind of my career and the, and the trajectory of what we hope to be for me. Hmm. Um, so you're in previews right now for the collaboration playing. Basquiat, is that correct? Yes, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yeah, uh, which I'm very excited for. And I believe you also filmed the film before, right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. We did, you know, it's me and Paul Bettany, plays Andy Warhol. We went to London. We did it in London at the Young Vic Theater. We finished the movie a couple of weeks ago, which is a bit different than the play. And then now we're back on Broadway. We're back to the play version of it, doing it on Broadway. So it's been kind of like a, yeah, three-iteration 
project. I've been living with Basquiat and his mind and soul for some time now, which feels very different, but it's also very exciting. Yeah. You did do Choir Boy for quite a, you know, there's a long I period did. of time. There there. Was, it was like, but it's like, I did it. I did it for a couple months and then it went away. It was like 2013 and then it went right. away for like six years. And then it came back, you know, Terrell won the Oscar and they were like, oh, we're going to do it on Broadway. And they were people like, did you even age out? Like, do you still want to play this role? So there was like that negotiation. But I think with the Basquiat to kind of do the play, then open up the story, do the film, and then now kind of use what you've learned from the film and from London to inform the play on Broadway. And I'm back at the Samuel J. Freeman, which is where I made my Broadway debut in Choir Boy. So it all kind of feels full circle. Um, working with Paul has been a dream. And Kwame, our director, has been lovely because he's been the same director for each iteration. Um, a very unique experience in allowing each iteration to be different, which has been thrilling. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd, I've learned a lot about myself as an artist and as a creative while also learning and living, you know, through kind of the lens and perspective of Basquiat for some time. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm also curious about with playing someone like Basquiat, exactly what the research process is like, how accurate, for lack of a better term, you want to be. Mm. Um, you mentioned Ain't Too Proud, but, you know, in this movie's case, in this play slash movie's case, you're playing a queer icon, uh, bringing his story to the masses in that kind of way. And there is a kind of weight to that, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who is portraying someone, I think your job is to get as close as you can to the heart and to the soul. And that's where usually truth lies. And it's less about the characterization of someone um, while people have the, you know, their things that they bring on the surface, but really trying to understand what's inside. I think for me, what I've been very fortunate, you know, there's, there's books, there's pictures, there's movies. I use his art. I think he had a very clear um, conscious between you know, his heart and mind to his canvas. So a lot of times his canvases in particular, they speak to where he was at emotionally. Um, so that's been a lot of my entry point because he was a very mysterious person. It's like trying to, to understand what he was teaching us and informing us about through his art, why, why Miles Davis was written, why certain words were written three times, but crossed out, you know, the understanding the neo-expressionist of the art and using that to inform his heart and soul. Um, his family actually had King Pleasures, the exhibit here in New York City, which ran mm -hmm. for a while. The first exhibit by his family that was put on, and it was about understanding him as a brother and as a son and as 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 a person they lived with and they knew outside of just the art. So I found myself any moment I would fly down. We were shooting in Boston. I'd fly down and just go and spend some time in the space. And I had been before. I think I went, you know, over 10, 15 times, but I just wanted to be in the room and feel the energy and be informed by something new each time I went because this felt like a gift from his family to the world and, you know, of how they saw him um, and felt him. So, you know, you throw all those things into the pot and then you go on stage and then you throw it away and then you're, you're just used. You're, you go through the, the story and you make decisions on their behalf and what you interpreted, they, they you know, maybe felt. Um, but again, I think being able to live with someone for some time and try and feel and feel safe with Paul and know that he's doing kind of the same work in opposition of me. And we're just vessels to kind of move in a frequency of interpreting what it was like to be these giants and geniuses. Um, it's been thrilling and, and fun. And 
you know, to bring it to New York, kind of the stomping grounds of where these artists lived is a gift. So I think we're just in that journey now of bringing in our New York audiences and allowing them to experience, you know, our interpretation of Warhol and Basquiat and what that time of them collaborating was like. And then I think we'll have a whole different vibration and feeling when the movie comes out, because it is very different than the play. Um, and, you know, for me, allowing each one to be different, I think, you know, stage, you have to move a certain way. You have we get a lot of notes about projecting. And <laughs> that's been an interesting conversation because we just got off the film where you can be a little bit more nuanced and subtle and it can be internal and you don't have to say as much. So just moving through those hybrids of different mediums of like, what does this story feel like? How, what does Jean-Michel feel like on a Broadway stage versus what does he feel like when the camera is punched in here and how I was able to play things a bit different. Um, and give a bit more subtext that, you know, I have to move through a bit different on stage. Um, so it's, it's been a, a, a muscle, flexing mm-hmm. a muscle as an actor, as a creative to see where do the two, you know, how can you move in the both spaces of being on stage and being on screen? Um, but I've had the best time and it's, it's, you know, it would suck if I didn't like Paul, but I actually really, really <laughs> like him and I fell in love with the cast. So it makes, it makes for this job to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And such a contrast to something like the inspection where it is yeah. three weeks in and out, basically. Yes, I know. It's a true contrast of having this many days, go in, shoot the movie, kind of leave in a blur of did we get it? Um, whereas this, um, it's been some time. It's been some yeah. weeks. It's been some we just did a two show day yesterday. Um, it's been some time. So now we're going to listen to a conversation that I had with Ryan Johnson, the writer and director of Glass Onion, which was in theaters, is back out of theaters, but will be on Netflix and um, for Christmas. If you have not been spoiled on the movie, don't worry. He is still very spoiler careful. Um, and I think with good reason, you know, when you've put together something this convoluted and uh, enjoyable with all these twists that um, are best left unspoiled, you learn to be careful. Um, and David, you talked to Janelle Monet, the star of the movie, uh, back in October, I think, and she was even more careful back then. So you too understand the veil of secrecy around Glass Onion. It's fascinating to think about how they've had these conversations behind the scenes of what they can reveal, when they can reveal it. Um, So I'm curious, like, how much more he said than she was willing to say. Well, (laughs) he had an interesting tactic, which is, you know, he was talking about how he structures these whodunits and these mysteries and saying that he really starts not with characters, but like the killer, the protagonist, the victim, um, and use the first movie as an example, you know, talking about how he knew he needed someone really sympathetic. So that's how he came to the Anadharma's character. And, you know, you kind of have to listen to him talking and be like, oh, well, I've seen the movie, so I know how that fits onto Glass Onion. Um, so there's some guesswork involved, but, you know, he's clearly very good at um, revealing as much as he wants to. Hmm. Um, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's listen to my conversation with Ryan Johnson. Hi, Ryan Johnson. How have you been? How has the past couple weeks been for you? Hey, Katie Rich. <laughs> uh, it's been pretty amazing, man. It's been pretty fun. Yeah, I mean, we're talking after this Thanksgiving release, and you talked about the theatrical release for Glass Onion a whole lot. But like now that it's actually fully in the preview, I think it's fully out of theaters. Like, are you breathing a relief that it went so well? Are you just you know looking toward the next thing? Uh, yeah, I'm already thinking about the Netflix release, but it was. I mean, it just wasn't incredible. It was an amazing week. It, re- it was. It was kind of like this insane quick rush, but um, for me, just like seeing the audience reactions to it and just being able to like stand in the back of theaters and feel audiences just having a good time watching it. I mean, it was just, that's, that's the whole reason we make these things. 
How many theaters did you go to to watch it? I, I actually was all over the place. I was in New York for the first half of the week, and I went to like four or five different theaters. And then in LA, I did about I did the same thing. I kind of hit a bunch of the theaters around town, and um, it was so much fun. The energy in the theaters and just kind of um, I don't know. It, it felt like back before the world changed. It felt like yeah. You know, crowds having having a blast together. You know? Yeah, How, I mean, so I want to keep this conversation pretty spoiler free because I know people haven't seen it. How are you feeling about spoilers at this point? Because the movie is sort of out and sort of not, and there's a lot of twists to preserve. Yeah, I have no idea. I guess I I, I guess <laughs> I feel like I'm not gonna feel comfortable going free for all until after Netflix, because I know just numerically, people the the vast majority of people will probably see it once it's on Netflix. So I guess, but I, at the same time, it's like you know. I'm very anxious to be able to start talking more spoilery just because there are certain elements, like, I don't know, I'm I'm excited to start being able to actually talk about Janelle's performance specifically, so that'll be fun. Yeah, well, um, David Canfield, who's on the show with me, talked to Janelle in October, and, like, Netflix was very eager to do the piece, and they were like, how are we going to write this exactly? And, like, she (laughs) she is very creative in the way that she talks about her performance, Uh, yeah. Yeah, she's learned. I've, she's she's gotten a lot of practice at this point of kind of yeah. threading the threading the needle. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk to you about the cast specifically because you know we're like looking at the ensemble in general, and I know that you started writing this kind of with the Lasso Sheila as like a touchstone at some point. So was it from the like the very beginning that you knew you were going to make another one that you were like, yes, a group of friends. That's how I'm going to put this group together for the second one. Yeah, I mean, it was the. the Kind of the starting point for it was um, because I, when I write, I start very, very structurally. That's just kind of the way I learned how to do it was starting with structure. And so um, so the structure of the film, which, again, is hard to talk about without spoiling, sure. <laughs> spoiling it, but <laughs> the basic structural gambit, the movie does a very big structural kind of gambit. Uh, yeah. And um, and that, in the abstract, was kind of the first thing that really got me going. But I had in my head... Uh, vacation mystery because it made sense to me to kind of plant a big obvious flag for the audience that this was going to be very different from the first one. Yeah. So um, I had vacation mystery. I had the notion of a group of friends and the Laster Sheila thing of them all being invited and sort of the merrily we roll along thing of kind of old friends whose, whose friendships have soured over the years. And so and so all of that was kind of in the mix from the beginning, but it, it was only when I came up with sort of the structural heart of it and the character that is our actual protagonist at the heart of it, that um, that the whole thing came to focus. Well, when you know you've got Benoit Blanc who's going to be at the center of it, and are you writing with, like, specific people or types or char- for the characters in mind? Do you know you want to, like, have a constellation around Daniel Craig of people who aren't like Daniel Craig, so that you've got that kind of big mish- mishmash? Well, sort of. I mean, the reality is I, I actually... It's a weird thing with these movies because they... Um, the detective is at the heart of it, but the detective is never the protagonist of the movie. And, and that's narratively like a really important thing. So for me, what I actually start with just in the abstract is even before I know who the characters are and discover who they are, um, I start with really the, the killer, the victim and the protagonist. Okay. Um, like, let's talk about the first movie because it's a lot easier with, with spoilers, <laughs> you know, like, uh, in which, in which the protagonist is, is Anna Darmus's character, Marta. So the basic shape of that movie was the notion of, um, the shape of having, uh, kind of the false reveal of a character that we're genuinely sympathetic to having done the crime, done the murder, 
but are the our sympathies genuinely being with that person as opposed to in kind of a squeamish Norman Bates and psycho type way. Um, and then we'll be, which was interesting to me because then the detective becomes the antagonist because we're worried that he's going to catch her and, and then threading the killer through it kind of in the background and doing the reveal at the end of the whodunit lurking behind the whole thing. Okay. So just kind of the abstract bold strokes of that was kind of the starting point in the same way with glass onion, um, ha 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 doing ha 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 with ha 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 was kind of the starting point for it. I apologize, Katie. This is terrible. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Anyone who's now seen the movie in theaters is going to be like, ah, they're going to all fall into pieces. <laughs> yes, exactly. But that, but that structure and that basic structure that I start with then leads to what the characters need to be. It, 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 um, as opposed to coming up with personalities or people or types, I come up with the story and then the the characters kind of like um, sounds very clinical almost, but it, it's the way that I've just learned to work. The characters are molded to fit their exact purpose in mm-hmm. the story. So again, with Anna's character, knowing that we had to build somebody that the audience was going to be immediately sympathetic towards and um, that was actually going to carry our... Uh, that we were going to be on her side from the very start in an unambiguous way that completely shaped everything about her character from the start. Um, you, you know, and, thinking of, of sympathy, because when you start into this movie, it's a bunch of pretty rich people going on a really rich person's trip. Do Knives Out movies have to be about rich people, or is that just a coincidence of how you've done these so far? No, that just happens to have been these two. And I feel like it might actually be important with the next one to break from that, <laughs> just so <laughs> this doesn't become just about <laughs> just about eat the rich. No, but I also they feel like it's they're about they are about rich people, but they're also, you know, essentially there's there's not a lot I can actually grab onto in more than a superficial way in terms of grr rich people. Like the first mm-hmm. one is the first one's much more about uh it's about family, it's about it is about money, but it's it's about um it's about what happens when that horrible element of money enters into family dynamics, which is something that I think any of us can relate to on a level beyond just reading a headline about rich people and getting angry. And so, um, yeah. uh, and, and, and so with this one as well, it's about culpability and about complicity and big lies out of self-interest um, and how all of us in our relationship to the system are complicit in that in some way and kind of recognize the name themselves. So there always has to be something that, that grounds it beyond, I think, just, you know, boo, rich people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do, when you get into specific characters, I feel like if you're going to have a vacation story, you're going to wind up with a tech guy somewhere who's going to be able to finance this whole thing. So yeah, when you, you need, I, <laughs> I mean, I think the Edward Norton character is interesting because he is, you know, he's, he's the um, the fulcrum of the story in some ways. He's the person who invites them there. Like, can you talk about how you landed on that being who would kick off this weekend and who would sort of be the the nucleus of the story for a while? Well, I mean, and this speaks to kind of um, what I find appealing about the genre in general and, and kind of what kicked off wanting to do these movies in the first place, which is they, they are they are incredibly efficient machines for building a microcosm of society and mm-hmm. thus for engaging with society and talking about it. And that's one of the... Having grown up as a whodunit junkie, um, so much of the stuff I grew up loving and watching were period pieces that were set in some nostalgic version of England. And um, they they hadn't done what I just described for a while, it felt like. 
so the notion of doing what Christie did back in the day, she was writing to her time and her place and doing that now and taking this whodunit, setting it unapologetically in America right here and right now, and using this little microcosm of a group of suspects with a power structure with somebody at the top who everybody has a motive to kill, using mm-hmm. that to engage with the society that we're all in day to day right here and right now. That that seemed to me like a really uh, a really interesting interesting challenge, you know. So you got to a tech guy pretty fast that way, saying get, yeah. getting to the here and now. That's yeah. where you land pretty quick. Well, and and also you know it's there are there are more kind of prosaic considerations like it's the big one of the big challenges is also how to isolate the group of suspects you know you need Mm -hmm. to isolate them so that there's a contained field of suspects and and the more you can do that the better so the notion of them all being on an island if they're the only ones on the island it's a private island and who's going to own the private island yeah billionaire yada yada so um so there's lots of other kind of things but um but it also made sense right now uh for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to try to bait you into saying anything about specific people, but uh, has Elon Musk being the main character of the news for the last three weeks kind of felt like a, like a self-marketing she, for your movie? She said, baiting me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what Netflix spent on the viral marketing to finance that whole Twitter I guess they sale, bought Twitter for $44 billion. It's a, I guess then, so I guess, you know what, worth, worth every penny for that one week in theaters. It worried me, it's worth it. <laughs> um, so it was, so Kaylee Cuoco talked really openly about auditioning for this movie, which is fascinating because you don't see that happen very often. And the way she put it was very kind and how it like she wound up doing the thing that she wanted to do. But I like that was an interesting window for me into the audition process of something like this because these characters feel so specific to the actors who they are. But yeah. when you when you're starting it so structural, do you have a lot of leeway for being like, well, it could be this person or they could be 20 years older or they could be, you know, have this background with them? Like how much when you start looking for actors, how much specifically do you need them to fit? these characters you have in mind? Yeah, it's, it's a combination of both. And it's, it's um, on the one hand, you do have leeway. On the other hand, as the ensemble starts to come together, um, is something as big and dumb but necessary as age range, for example. The mm-hmm. fact that once we started kind of building this group, everyone started landing in about the same age range. Well, they have to have been friends at the same time. You really need Ex- it. Exactly. And so yeah. there, there are things like that that you have to end up taking into consideration. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it is, it is, I mean, casting can be a really gut-wrenching process because, especially with something like this, because there's any number of absolutely brilliant actors who I give my left arm to work with. Um, but at the end of the day, you can only cast one person in the role and you kind of have to just... Um, be tuned into all these different factors and, and just, 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 just put your money down on, on one number. So, um, but then also at the end of the day, what Katie says is absolutely true. And I think this, this does end up, everything does end up working out mm-hmm. for, for the best and everything happens the way that it's supposed to, at least that's been my experience is that, um, you know, you, you get to the end of the process and even if at the beginning it felt like there were all these options at the end, there's nobody that you can imagine in these parts except those people. Yeah. I mean, to me, Dave Bautista is in some ways the outlier of this friend group. Like when you get to you get to kind of see a little bit of how they all met, like you sort of see him as like a budding YouTube star, but that could be anybody. And he's like, yeah. he's a visual contrast. He's huge, obviously. Um, <laughs> why was, did you write Duke for someone like him the whole time? Or is this what Dave Bautista turned him into? No, I wrote Duke thinking it was going to be somebody not like Dave at all. Thinking it was going to be somebody like, you know, kind of like a scrawny white dude who was, mm-hmm. you know, 
punching above his weight class and in compensating for a lot of things. And it was a huge, I think Mary Vernew, our casting director, brought the idea of Dave up. And um, I immediately clicked into it like, oh, that's brilliant. I, I yeah. First of all, because I had been a, a fan of his as an actor for a while, I feel like he has um, still to this day an untapped reservoir of, of acting talent that um, I think somebody like PTA is going to put him in a real dramatic role someday and look like a genius. I think Dave yeah. is actually a terrific dramatic actor. Um, and he also has a real vulnerability to him that contrasts with his uh, physical appearance that mm -hmm. I find really interesting. And the notion of him bringing, even in a subtle way, that, that element to this character was very interesting to me. Um, and yeah, it, it just, it, it felt a strange thing where it, it, based on how I conceived it and based on the group of friends, it, it might have seemed like, oh, this won't fit. But it, there was something about it that because it was very specifically Dave clicked and I was like, oh no, this will be very interesting actually. Do you think a lot about what these actors have done before in terms of their, like, a star persona feels kind of a hacky thing, but, like, what the audience is going to expect of them? Because we have to spend a lot of time watching them being like, what are they capable of? What do I think Catherine Hahn can do? Yeah. Um, that seems like it has to be a real concern in casting maybe more than not in a whodunit. A little bit. I mean, and it enters in with these movies a little bit more just because they are very blatantly all-star casts. And, and that goes back to, you know, my memories of watching... Uh, Death on the Nile and Murder on the Orient Express and Evil Under the Sun, the movies in the late 70s and early 80s that were kind of, that's kind of my emotional bedrock for what I'm trying to recreate with these things. Um, and and it's it, there is, I, I, it would be, you know, lying if I didn't say there wasn't some element of being self-aware of kind of the celebrity nature of, of the cast. Um, at the yeah. same time, at the same time, it, it, that that is... I don't know. Once you actually get into the process of it, the only thing that really matters is that the, the movie works as a movie and the characters work as characters. And that means that the person who feels the most right for the part is playing it. And I think you can get into trouble by leaning too much into the math of this person's persona from this or this person's perception from this. I think at the end of the day, even if an audience is aware of that coming into it, I think once you're in the midst of the movie, all that goes away very quickly if what they're doing on screen feels right and feels yeah. real. So um, so that kind of carries the day at the end of it. Did you win more of those conversations with maybe higher ups in this one than the first one, knowing that you had a hit on your hands being like, no, 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 this is the person. Don't <laughs> don't try to use your algorithm on me. Like, I know I know who I'm casting. Was it was it easier for you in that way? I've never had, I, I think I've been very, very lucky or very insulated by a very good producer. I've never had <laughs> those, I've never had to have those conversations in any movie that I've ever had. I've never had casting choices kind of second guessed, um, and especially not in the case of the first one or this one. It was, it was always just, um, it was always just kind of who we felt was right for the part, you know? Can I ask about Jackie Hoffman as Duke's oh, mother? Do. Which is please like, I don't do. think that counts as a spoiler. She's early in the movie. She was oh, no. uh, she's such yeah. a Let's delightful talk. presence to see. Uh, yeah. Why why was Jackie Hoffman the nagging mom you needed in that beginning scene? She's just so perfect. And the other she's thing so is, one, once you're aware of Jackie Hoffman, it's like uh, she is, and you watch TV. She's every. You realize mm -hmm, she's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Jackie's everywhere. Also, I need to shout out to Jackie because. She flew out to Belgrade, which is where we were shooting those scenes. We were on stages mm. in Belgrade for the back half of the shoot. 
She flew to Belgrade. We got ahead of schedule, so we were ready for her early. And Jackie Hoffman got off of a flight to Belgrade and drove straight to set from the airport. <laughs> got into her costume and did those scenes. She a was pro. <laughs> she was a fucking pro and just nailed it. And uh, I have so much love for Jackie Hoffman. <laughs> so I want to spread the gospel of everybody, please hire Jackie Hoffman all the time. She makes everything better. Only Murders in the Building has been such a character actor's like showcase. There's so uh, many people yeah. who I wouldn't have spotted before, but now I see them everywhere. It's been <laughs> a gift on that. I don't know if that's where you got the idea to cast her from, but. I, I knew her from that, but it was mostly just Mary kind of presenting her as just like, oh yeah, that's perfect. That's too yeah, small. The, <laughs> the perfect person. Um, the extent to which the pandemic humor is funny feels like it's hitting on the exact bell curve of when it would be funny. And I know you wrote this in 2021, you're shooting it then, like there's no way you could have known where we would be in terms of what we were ready for. But like, did you spend a lot of time calibrating that? Like thinking, well, if this happens and that happens, like how did you know it felt right? Yeah, I mean, it, was, it was a little bit of a roll of the dice, honestly. But also it was, I mean, you know, I wrote it in 2020. I wrote it when we were really in the th in the heart of the lockdown. And yeah. um, the, the choice to put it in there was was kind of based on what I said before, just based on, okay, the marching orders I've given myself for these things is, is going to be set in the here and now. And given that this is maybe the one massive global event that literally everyone on planet Earth has, has had to go through, it would have felt weird to not include it. But then also, you know, it's the most serious thing in the world that happened. And these are maybe the least serious movies in the world. And so <laughs> treating it with a very light touch and getting past it fairly quickly was also something that I knew was, <laughs> if it's going to be in there, we got to do that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, people so, like yeah. did not have a sense of humor about like a pod, like having a fake pod. Like people got in fights about that all the time. And like oh, the fact me. that we can now laugh at it, it's like a relief. But I don't yeah. think I knew that we could laugh at it until I saw it in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I know it feels. It is definitely. Um, it was a little bit of rolling of rolling the dice and of and of kind of imagining that. Okay, when I was writing, it's like this will be a few years from now, and we'll see. And and also, you know, obviously, if if we had been in a different situation now, and it had it felt in poor taste, we would have cut it out. We would have taken mm -hmm. it out. So there's. We've been hard to that. cut out though. Like you really yeah. kind of went all in. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's only in there because it feels like something that we can kind of, you know, um, I, and, and yeah, again, hopefully it's, it's, it was all calibrated with an appropriately light touch, I think. So it's interesting yeah. though, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but also with, with, with all of the present day engaging with culture type stuff, it, it feels, it does feel like it, there's a weird element where it feels like throwing darts from a moving truck and another moving truck, you just kind of toss huh. them and, and hold your breath and, and hope that it lands years from now when the movie actually comes out. Yeah. I was thinking about the name Miles Braun and how it sort of feels like it could be an anagram for like a clue, which I don't think it is, but it feels <laughs> kind yeah. of made up. And a lot of these names feel like names people could have given themselves. And it's not in the text that it is, but like, are they all their real given names? Or do you think some of these people have created these names for themselves? I, I'll, I'll bet, I'll bet these, a lot of these are probably created. I don't know if Birdie... Birdie, Birdie J feels a little on the nose. Yeah, uh, I'll bet. I'll bet Claire's is her real name and Lionel mm -hmm. uh, Duke. 
I mean, maybe though. I mean, his mom calls him Duke. Calls Would him Jackie Dukey. Hoffman have named her son Duke? I think is the question that this brings up. Yeah, that's that's true. Dukey. But I, yeah, I'll put it this sure. way: if Jack, if Jackie Hoffman had not named her son Duke, I doubt highly she would call him Duke. She would call him. That's true. Oh yeah. She would call that's him a good Ed, point. Edwin. Edwin, get him there. <laughs> I mean, I, I know, know the I know Duke. the rules of this franchise, but now I just want Jackie Hoffman to come into into the third one. And she has to be the new <laughs> Noah. She has to be there in everyone, I think. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular roundtable conversation. In the meantime, find us on Twitter at HWD. Email us at littlegoldmen at vf.com with your burning award season questions. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash littlegoldmen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash littlegoldmen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Mubi.com slash little gold men.